Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. We've talked about invasive annual grass management on the podcast from a few different angles, but my guest today makes the case that we really haven't made much progress on the cheatgrass problem. It's worth coming back to because we have in the West what some have called sagebrush seas, where cheatgrass features prominently and really drives landscape ecology. Uh, Dr. Barry Perryman is a professor at University of Nevada, Reno, where he teaches and researches range and animal science and has been doing so for some time now. He's also a regular contributor to Range Magazine, which is a rare appointment for an academic. Barry, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I will get back to cheatgrass in just a minute, but I wanted to visit a bit about your pathway to being a range researcher. Uh, most people don't leave high school with a conviction to become a range professor. If if I recall correctly, you did time in the oil fields in your youth. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, I spent uh, uh, 10, 10 or 12 years anyway in the oil field in the Rocky Mountain region. Was that your first stop out of high school? Uh, no, first stop out of high school, I, I, uh, I did attend college. Uh, there were a couple of, uh, there were only two colleges in the state of Texas at the time that would accept you with uh, three years of high school English. So I picked one of those and uh, the rest is history, I guess. Uh, when uh, when I graduated, we were in the middle of the, the Carter uh, presidency and uh, there weren't a lot of jobs around. So I went uh, in jobs in natural resource management anyway. So I went to the oil fields of the uh, uh, Williston Basin in Eastern Montana and Western North, North Dakota back in the late seventies. And then how did you end up in a range degree? Well, my undergraduate degree was in agronomy and, and rangeland ecology. And and uh, so I just, uh, at, after a 10 years or so, uh, or a dozen years or so, I guess all total, uh, I had to figure out a way to extract myself from the, from the oil field. And, and I just kept hearing the call, uh, you know, who's going to speak for the land. So... Uh, you know, who knows why why Napoleon crossed the Danube? Uh, he might have just been been you know felt like it that morning. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have an answer for you. I just was pulled in that direction, and and I had to I had really had to get out of the oil field, and and I had to get into something that uh, that I thought that I would really enjoy doing. And and this was this had been it since I was twelve years old, probably. Yeah, I've often said that agriculture keeps people tethered to reality because you can't argue very long with nature and she always wins. And at least on the production end of agriculture, uh, the, the fruits of one's labor are worth more than one's pay. And that is also, I guess, philosophically and economically grounding. Uh, you talked about speaking for the land. How did the oil fields change you? Was that was the experience there what made you feel like someone needed to speak up? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I, I'd always felt that way. Uh, the oil field was just sort of a, I guess, a, a, a turn in the road that I had to go through. And once you get into something and then you get a family, you get married, you get a family, you, uh, you, you need some stability and, and that provided stability at the time. And, uh, uh, but I always, I always thought that, that, uh, I would be moving into into something else, and at the time it was mine land reclamation. That was sort of one of the hot topics uh, that was going on in the in the late seventies and early eighties uh, when we really began to to look into mine land reclamation. And so that was my my first, I guess, dipping my toe into the reservoir. Anyway, what's been the focus of your research at UNR? Uh, and UNR, it's been uh, many and varied. Uh, I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of different kinds of things from all the way from the nutritional content of uh, forage plants to fire rehabilitation to uh, the demography of uh, sagebrush 
stands um, to cheat grass has been a, a big focus uh, the last 10 years or so. Uh, but I, I've really been fortunate to have uh, take, been able to take a look at a lot of different interesting things. So uh, that kind of feeds my ADD as well. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of ADD, I want to pivot in the conversation toward research methods, and then we'll come back to cheatgrass. A few years ago at the Society for Range Management meeting in Sacramento, Temple Grandin, who's a fairly well-known animal behaviorist from Colorado State University, uh, gave the keynote address during the plenary session. And she described, uh, most people know she's autistic. She described different ways of thinking Starting with the contrast between her own way of thinking uh, and that of most quantitative researchers, she thinks in pictures, not not really translating words into pictures, but thinks in pictures, like that's the native language of her brain. And she described how that makes communication challenging with the rest of the world. Uh, but there are some strengths in this, and uh, that talk was not long after the nuclear plant disaster in Japan, Fukushima, I think following the tsunami. And she said that if anybody had been involved in designing, auditing, building that power plant, who was a a picture thinker, they would have visualized seawater rushing into the rooms that house the backup power systems for the plant that activate when the primary power sources go off. Uh, That's a long introduction to her admonition to a conference full of scientists that healthy approaches to applied research, start with observations in the real world made by real people, and then move that toward controlled experiments or case studies that set out to tease out causality. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think for me, myself, I'm, I'm a, a pretty visual thinker uh, as well. Um, for what that's worth, and and I really do think that that uh, sort of common sense approaches to to research uh, are more productive, not only for the researcher but for for um, uh, society at large. Um, because what you know what we end up what we end up seeing, I think the fruit of that, other than a nuclear you know facility. Uh, going on high alert is is we what what some of that drives is when you get to the university uh research uh rather than it being for the you know duty and humanity so to speak it just becomes a competition to get funding uh instead of uh, a rational thoughtful approach to solving problems that that real people have in the real world and uh, a lot of my colleagues get get sucked into that um, that mode of thinking that it's it's all about uh, you know a competition for getting funding and of course administration is is you know a big part of that but uh, but i i do think that that uh, temple is right about that it, it is we just we don't observe things long enough um, or, or as long as we should uh, before we start trying to solve somebody's problem, mm-hmm. uh, we just kind of take off on our own. I think as a as a society in general, certainly in academia, I think that happens quite quite frequently. So you would say the problem is a little bit more fundamental than, I guess the the chief sin of following funders' demands for what gets researched. It it somewhat is losing touch with reality in the university scientific community well i think the old you know being uh, sequestered in a silo uh on an academic campus uh, you know that's an old cliche but uh it's it, it's still true to some <laughs> yeah to some point today so yeah i'm an extension specialist which is more outreach and less research and at least at wsu there's some movement toward integrating extension faculty into college departments to facilitate more integrated work uh, teaching research outreach it seems to me that that's the original intent of the cooperative extension system uh, extending the knowledge base of the land-grant universities out to people that can use it Uh, do you think that integration will help if it happens system-wide well, I think it 
the, the model is there. It's been successful in the past, uh, you know, yeah. for decades. Yeah. And then uh, uh, a lot of land-grant universities over the past couple of decades have, have uh, sort of abandoned that, whether intentionally or, or unintentionally in some cases. Um, and I think uh, what they're finding now is that, uh, that we're going to have to have a movement back toward that three-legged stool of uh, uh, land-grant university where you have teaching, you have research, and you have outreach. And uh, it's a pretty good model. It works pretty good when it's, when it's implemented correctly. Yeah. Can you describe some research that you've been involved with recently that was initiated by um, interaction with ranchers and land managers? Well, you know, I think the the big example is, uh, and you already mentioned it earlier, is is this invasive annual grass uh, issue in the Intermountain West um, that's been sort of you know, simmering on the back burner for several decades, um, and uh, we you know we had uh, one of the ranchers. We were out at, uh, we had a group of ranchers out at uh, the university ranch uh, one day and we were talking about it. And uh, I was talking about, this is what I would like to do in terms of research. And uh, one of the ranchers said, well, why don't you just do it here in this way, um, in this locale? And uh, I I thought about it for a little while and said, well, yeah, maybe we can make that work. And so just, you know, direct result of just having a conversation with, uh, you know, the ranching industry uh, sort of set us on the pathway to, to solving uh, at least the, the, in part, the, the, this issue of invasive annual grasses when it comes to cheatgrass in particular. So uh, that's just a classic example of that. You got you to get out in the real world uh, and discover what the problems are and discover you know, look at the problem long enough. And I had a, I had a, a tribal elder tell me years and years ago uh, that uh, he said, look, you know, when you're a young man or a young woman, he says, when, you, when you've seen enough and when you've heard enough and when you've thought about what you've seen and heard long enough, then you'll have something to say. And, of course, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. bad, the unsaid portion of that was, you know, keep your mouth shut until you know something about what you're talking about. Um, and, and I think, uh, uh, you know, that, that bit of wisdom is probably lost on a, on a large segment of our society today. So, yeah, you, along with a few others published a, a paper in 2018, I believe that was discussing more of this new paradigm for thinking about cheatgrass than the details of some research that had been done on, on cheatgrass. Uh, but in that paper, you say that we've focused in range management guidelines on promoting the vigor of desirable perennial grasses as the main weapon, so to speak, against invasive annual grasses. But that uh, even if we combine that with targeted grazing during the boot stage or early seed head formation, this really hasn't appreciably reduced the cheatgrass problem. And in, in making the transition in the uh, inside the paper's narrative, transitioning to talking about this novel approach, you provide some analysis of the scientific name for cheatgrass, Bromus tectorum, and this really struck me. I don't. I've been in, in the field of range ecology for twenty years, and I had never uh, heard anybody identify that uh, tectum is the Latin word for roof, and that Bromus tectorum is literally brome of the roof. And of course, everyone knows the species came from the Mediterranean. I had heard research from UC Davis showing that the the radical, the root hair coming off of cheatgrass seed can go through eight inches of litter to get down to uh, some moisture or soil. And, and that, that makes sense. Uh, but you, you guys make the case in the paper that we have to move beyond thinking about just promoting the competition with um, beginning to think through interrupting the biology of the plant. I'm quoting here, although a healthy, resilient perennial grass understory is likely the single most important long-term assurance against invasive annual grass dominance, 
Range ecologists and managers have long applied science-based management practices that exclude consideration of the biology, ecology, and probable management effects these grazing systems would have on the non-native annual grass component of modern landscapes. Uh, And you discussed both deferred rotation and rest rotation as the dominant grazing systems used in the Great Basin, I would say in the Pacific Northwest as well. And that these are really focused on meeting the needs of the perennials, but don't. But they tend to uh, uh, perpetuate cheatgrass in particular. Uh, so, what is the the alternative approach that that seems to have some uh, some merit? Well, in the first place, that sounded pretty good when you read it. I didn't think it was that good, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, what you know when when our grazing systems when when the when the sort of our traditional grazing systems that we use throughout the Intermountain West um, were developed, uh, they were developed at a time prior to you know invasive annuals becoming a significant uh, portion of the landscape. Uh, Deferred rotation, of course, A.W. Sampson back, you know, 1912. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, then rest rotation later on with, with Gus Hormay and, and his group in the, in the 1950s. And, uh, uh, and so we imposed those. And they worked great for those systems, those perennial systems uh, that, you know, didn't have any annu- invasive annuals in them. Uh, they, they worked fantastic. The research you know, showed it, it, and, and when it was in, when they were implemented, it, it showed it that, uh, uh, that it was good for the perennial grasses. But now over the intervening time, we begin to overlay invasive annuals into the, into the system. And, uh, when these, uh, when these grazing systems were developed, nobody checked to see what the, what kind of an effect it would have on the invasive annuals that were growing, alongside the perennials. Uh, we just continued to, you know, implement what we've been implementing for for grazing systems for the last several decades. And uh, we just never thought to, I guess no one ever thought to ask the question, well, what uh, could this be part of the problem um, that's shifting the dominance uh, away from perennial grasses and to the, towards the, the, the annual grasses, um, you know, what's going on here. So we, we kind of, I mean, that's, you know, that's what happened. Um, and, and then what we found out through, through research, um, and some of the basic research actually occurred in the 1970s. Uh, and then back to this, um, you know, grass of the roof idea, um, it, it, it all pointed toward litter. Uh, ground litter and the more ground litter turns out the more standing dead litter you leave on the ground in the fall when cheatgrass begins to germinate you know after the traditional grazing season the more cheatgrass you're going to have over time it's it's pretty simple concept and and of course you you know you refer to uh, uh, the latin name of cheatgrass being basically being the grass of the roof uh, Linnaeus named it, um, you know, in, in Europe and, and his preferred habitat at the time was growing on old thatched roofs and in piles of thatch when they would pull off, uh, uh, pull them off the roofs to replace them. So uh, it all just sort of added up. And then, of course, the, the basic research in the 70s showed that litter, uh, cheatgrass and medusa head as well need uh need a litter accumulation to to really uh, do well they just don't do well on on uh, bare soils or or soils with low litter accumulations so yeah that makes me wonder even about the the actual biological mechanisms involved in in places where cheatgrass isn't abundant for example at least in the pacific northwest where you have pretty healthy blue bunch wheatgrass communities, you tend to not find much cheatgrass. And I think I would have assumed that that was because there was competition at the plant soil interface for nutrients, moisture, something. 
but then uh, I'm also thinking that one of the diagnostic features for identifying blue bunch wheatgrass is that it retains a lot of its stems and leaves in the plant crown and it doesn't it doesn't lay them down under a snow load they really stay there and so uh, blue bunch wheatgrass communities notoriously don't make a lot of ground litter i wonder if that's more causative than the competition uh, it, yeah, I'll give you the typical rangeland ecologist answer. Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. Uh, it depends yeah. on where you are, and, and and where we're talking about, you know, where I'm talking about primarily in in the sort of the middle of the Great Basin, uh, we're we're winter dominated precip, and we're in an eight to ten inch precip zone. And if you start getting above, you know, you get into that twelve inch precip zone other things begin to apply that don't apply uh, in a different ecological site. And so when you've got blue bunch wheatgrass, you've got a little bit higher precipitation uh, and, and maybe the periodicity or the seasonality of it is a little bit different. So it's, it's never just one thing, you know, it's not just the litter, it's the competition that's there as well. But what happens, what we, what, what, what makes sense and what, what we're seeing down in, you know, in the, in the Great Basin area anyway, is that, that these, these big cheatgrass years or big Medusa head years, they're episodic. You know, you, like everything else in, in, in our neck of the woods, recruitment is episodic, whether it's a, you know, shrub species or a tree species or, or, uh, or grass species. The, the more harsh the site, the more variable the site is, weather-wise and so on and so forth, the, the, the more episodic reproduction or establishment becomes. And so uh, you, may be, you may go along for a number of years and not have a lot of, of cheatgrass litter you know, generated or perennial grass litter generated. Uh, and then suddenly you get a, you know, a 2016, or maybe this year might be one of those years. You get these gigantic years where the, the cheatgrass just you know, out produces everything, just swamps everything. And so those are the years when the biggest ecological change occurs. It's, it's not necessarily the drought years. I've been arguing for a long time. We've got, you know, we've got drought plans out the wazoo, but the, the drought years aren't the big years that create the ecological change. It's the, it's the, it's these big wet years where invasive annuals are just exploding uh, with their dominance, mm -hmm. those are the years that drive the fuel uh, that causes the fires that you know drives most, not all, but most of the ecological change that we're seeing uh, in the Intermountain West um, are these um, these wet years. With you know, that's not maybe not be may not be the best way to characterize them, but uh, but these higher precip years uh, that really drive high production of these. Um, uh, you know, invasive annuals. So, uh, so I don't know how far I strayed from the topic, but, uh, uh, you know, rein me in whenever, whenever I get too far afield here, but, uh, yeah. So what's the approach that seems to be working fall and winter grazing that disrupts the litter? It seems like there's in our, uh, in, in looking at the, the paper and talking with Kirk Davies about this, it seems like there's really three, biological mechanisms that that would be effective with fall and maybe early winter grazing, at least at lower elevations. Uh, one is that the animals, domestic livestock, will consume the fall germinated seedlings. Two, that the animals uh, disrupt the litter cover that at a minimum potentially opens up germination sites for perennial grasses. And uh, Three, something you and I have talked about a bit, is that the, the animals will actually consume some of that old litter. Is that what's going on or is there um, are there more mechanisms as well? Well, there, there may be more subtle mechanisms that, that aren't expressing themselves, but, but you know, given the situation that we have, but, but given where we're at now uh, in the scheme of things, those, those three things uh, kind of go together to – sort of provide some causality. Uh, you know, in the first place, if you don't have perennial grasses there, 
there's nothing that's going to respond to to a reduction in you know annual grasses. Right. So you've got to have perennial grasses there to provide some kind of competition or some you know some some something to take up that slack that you're that you're creating there that empty space that you're creating. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, cattle. If you get a green up on cheatgrass in the fall, they'll eat it. Uh, they'll eat the standing dead litter. They'll eat last year's oxidized litter that's laying on the ground. Uh, they're just it becomes really palatable uh, forage uh, in October and November and December in, in, in much of the Great Basin. And of course, your perennials are are dormant for the most part at that point of time, and and so you're you're less likely to do any kind of um, long term damage on uh, uh, on perennial grasses. And then you have the just the sheer aspect, and this is this is what brought us to to researching cheatgrass uh, and and finding out some of the things that we didn't know. Is we thought, well, okay, if uh, if we've got, you know, pick a number, if we've got a thousand pounds of cheatgrass to the acre in an area out here, October the 1st, it's dead standing cheatgrass. And we go out there and we, we take a bunch of animals out there and we ate, eat 800 pounds of that. That's 800 pounds of fuel that's not going to be carried over into next year's fire season. Mm-hmm. So just from that standpoint, I mean, that's where we first, you know, sort of weighted into this thing is can we can we get them to eat this stuff in the fall um so that um um, you know we don't carry we don't have a bunch of fuels carried over into the next fuel season and the problem with you know the the problems that we have with trying to graze cheatgrass in the spring in the intermountain west and i'm not talking about montana and wyoming they're they're in places like that where there's been some research uh, that's i know jeff mosley's done some work up there it shows that you can really sort of, uh, you know, hammer cheatgrass pretty good uh, if you graze it in the spring. And, and that it works for them there. But in the Intermountain West, the, the logistics of that are just impossible. Trying to chase green cheatgrass in, in northern or central Nevada in the spring is, is just a pipe dream because you mm-hmm. logistically, because you don't know when it's going to green up. You know, this year it might green up in January. Next year it might be March. So you don't mm-hmm. know when it's going to green up. You don't know how long uh, it's going to be before it, it it heads out. It You know, so I've seen this stuff head out in a week sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you don't know how long you're going to be able to be on it. And you don't know how much you're going to get. And so if you're trying to plan, you know, you, those cows, you can't just put them in a lot and say, well, you guys hold it for, you know, a month or two. Um, they got to have a place to go. And so logistically, you just you can't make very good plans for trying to graze cheatgrass, green cheatgrass in the spring um, in, um, uh, in, in most of the Great Basin area. Whereas in the fall... Once uh, once the seed heads, once the seeds fall off of it, uh, you know, and by about first of September anyway, in most cases, it becomes very palatable again, and uh, uh, and and it's not going to grow anymore. You can go out there and you can do a quick measurement. You know how much you got. You can measure how many pounds you got per you know per acre, and you can quick do some figuring of how many cows you want, you need to get it down, and how much time you need to get it down to whatever your target level was and our target level in our research was about 100 to 200 pounds to the acre, because that's the, basically the difference between a direct attack and an indirect attack. If, if it ca- if it caught fire. So we just mm-hmm. kind of use that as our rule of thumb for trying to, to, to get the, the standing letter, uh, the standing biomass down to those levels. And so in, in the fall, there, all those logistical problems go away. And plus, in the fall, typically your perennials are are, are uh, dormant. In the spring, they're not, and so cheatgrass is green. It's growing beside perennials, and all of a sudden, cheatgrass starts heading out in a week or two. Well, the diet preference completely shifts from cheatgrass over to your perennials, and you may be, you know, in your perennial stem elongation stage possibly, and so there there could you know, there could potentially be some short term issues, probably not long term, but. Uh, um, so anyway, logistically trying to graze the stuff in the fall just made sense. And, and again, if you can go out there and you can, you know, graze off 
five or six, 800 or a thousand pounds of it in the fall, you won't have that carried over into next year's uh, fuel load, which, you know, makes some sense. Uh, what we didn't realize at the time, uh, and I, I discovered this over in Central Asia, uh, going back and forth over there, uh, what we discovered was that uh, this litter, in many cases, is really the key that that shifts dominance to over to invasive annual grasses and, uh, and the way that you manage it and the way that you manage your, your, the areas that you're grazing that have perennial grasses on them mixed with, uh, uh these invasive annuals, uh, the way that you graze them not only affects, you know, <laughs> this is, this is brilliant. It not only affects the perennial grasses, but it also affects the annual grasses out there. And yeah. so uh, how do you get those things into into better synchronization? And uh, and the folks over in Central Asia, uh, you know, they've been grazing animals for you know, 8,000 years over there. They have a few things figured out that uh, we may not have figured out over here. So, yeah, you mentioned that one of the one of the old paradigms is trying to promote the perennials. But but I think one of the other old paradigms is is what uh, you have called pristine management paradigm. The idea, and I guess I would say, if I'm paraphrasing um, what you guys articulated in the paper, not only can we not return to some pre-Columbian ecological nirvana, but maybe there wasn't one? <laughs> that's exactly right. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, when, when people think of, people in general think of uh, the West and and what it should look like or what they want it to look like, uh, they immediately go back to you know Lewis and Clark and their description of the landscape um, and uh, during the pioneer period, the settlement period, um, and just before that, you know, fourteen ninety one, that whole uh, post Columbian period. Uh, began to work on the ecosystems uh, in a way that uh, that was kind of negative and uh you it, that's just that, that just makes no sense because why do you why are you choosing that period of time for instance a period of time with a little ice age from 1550 to 1850 why are you choosing that period of time as your your target for this you know, this, this thing that we call a pristine landscape, why not pick, you know, 8,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago when we were in the middle of a 3,000 year drought, um, when people were no longer hunting big game, they were uh, subsisting on, you know, squeaky dogs and wood rats and, and a whole lot of plant materials. Um, you know, why are we, why are we wedded to, you know, to that moment in time in, in 1804 uh, as our vision of, of a pristine landscape that everything else post that time is measured against. Uh, you know, you can't be 12 years old again. Uh, even if you could be 12 years old again, everything else around you is not what it was when you were 12 years old again. So um, it just uh, it, it doesn't make much sense. And yet that's what much of our management over the last several decades has been geared toward if if a if a plant community of some kind out here uh, is not what we want it to be uh, then we can manage it so that it'll become what it was and uh, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't play out in reality very well yeah going back to what you said about uh, grazing in the old world in some of the research, uh, trying to look at how what are the natural control mechanisms for cheatgrass in the eastern hemisphere? What what do their what do some of those grazing patterns look like? Well, the, typically, yeah, again, rangeland ecologists, it depends. Uh, but typically, for instance, in in uh, much of Central Asia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, and uh, Xinjiang Xinjiang province in northwest China. <clears throat> Um, typically the way that, uh, the pastoralists use those areas is they'll, they'll winter in the desert and there's a number of deserts 
certain types of deserts, but they'll winter at lower elevation, mm-hmm. put it that way. They'll winter in those areas. And then they'll move up in elevation to the foothills <clears throat> in the spring, which is typically where the, the annual grasses um, occur, uh, along with perennial grasses. They have a mixed annual perennial um, plant communities when it comes to grasses. So they'll move up into the, into the foothills, uh, and they'll graze that in the spring on their way up to the mountains, and they'll, they'll summer up in the higher elevations. And then as the winter comes on, it gets a little cold, gets snowy in the mountains. They'll move back down the mountains. They'll move back through those foothills rangelands again in the fall, graze them again in the fall on their way back to their winter range out in the lower elevation desert country. And so those foothills areas get grazed twice. They get grazed in the spring. They get grazed in the fall. And when they come back in the fall, they take off pretty much most of that standing dead biomass. Uh, there's not a lot of standing dead biomass in, in throughout Central Asia. And uh, so it's a different way of, of sort of looking at the world. If there's something there that, that can be eaten, something eats it. So it's a, it's a really different way of, of, of viewing things. Now, you can overdo anything, obviously. But... Uh, uh, but we, we we started thinking, you know, what's going on here? They don't have a cheatgrass problem. This is the ancestral home of cheatgrass. They don't have a problem with it over here. What 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 is going on? And uh, so I brought this idea back that well, what would happen if we managed land in the United States, you know, in the Great Basin? If we managed land in the Great Basin grazing wise the way that they manage land in Central Asia, uh, would we get the same results uh, where cheatgrass is not dominant over there? Uh, we have much the same other perennial species. Um, some of them are different, but, uh, but they're, you know, they're bluegrasses, they're poas, uh, and they're, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they are uh, uh, needle grasses, uh, stipas, and so on. So what, you know, what's going on? What's different? So if we manage land this way in the in the in the Great Basin, we get the same results that they have in uh, in Central Asia. Of course, they don't have any fires over there. You start talking about fires in Central Asia to my colleagues over there, and they just kind of look at you with a blank, you know, blank stare. <laughs> they don't have they they don't know what you're talking about. It's just not in their in their experience, and uh, and so. Conversely, you know, the idea is, well, if you manage land in, in Central Asia the way that we manage land in the Great Basin, would we get the same results? And so sort of what we've come up with is, yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> if, you, if you manage land in the United States, if you take care of that standing dead litter in the fall, uh, cheatgrass is really at a, a, a competitive disadvantage. Um, in most years, you know, there's going to be some years where it, it, it may not work that way. But over the long haul, uh, you 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 really cut back on on uh, cheatgrass's ability to dominate an area. Now, and I'm not talking about how did it get somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. We're not we're not talking about how did cheatgrass get to, you know under next to a rock on a cliff face in the Ruby Mountains somewhere. Um, we're just talking about its dominance, where it's, where it's already you know located, and and how we as managers have actually managed cheatgrass uh, through the way that we manage land, uh, how we've actually managed it to become dominant. And you know, I've I've said this many times in in a lot of different venues, giving a talks on this subject. If someone told me you know thirty years ago to or forty years ago to go out and 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 grow as much cheatgrass as you could in the Great Basin. The only thing that I would have changed during that time period would I would I would have pulled all the domestic animals off. Uh, and uh, because our management in general, all of our management focus has been designed around the health and safety of the perennial plant, perennial grass plant. And we just did not imagine or ever think about what that effect might have on the 
the uh, the annual grasses, and here you know here we've come full circle back to what what we were talking about earlier. Um, same subject, and so our management, uh, in many ways, uh, has certainly at least exacerbated uh, the uh, the the rise of cheatgrass dominance uh, in the Intermountain West. Um, so, but knowing that mm-hmm. now and knowing why, you can reverse that and. It gets reversed if you start implementing fall grazing. It's it. We have several um, demonstration projects around, uh, uh, and and you can also find places in nature where it occurs. But when you start really controlling that standing dead litter in the fall, it takes about three growing seasons to four growing seasons, and you really start seeing a significant change in the dominance, uh, out there. Now it's, you know, it's here, we're not going to get rid of it. Uh, so it's going to require some maintenance over time. You know, there may be years where you may not have enough cheatgrass to go out there in the fall, um, and, and support animals. Uh, but in other years, of course, we know that, uh, uh, there's not enough animals in the <laughs> Intermountain West to take care of a half of a county in, in Northern Nevada in terms of uh, being able to eat all the, uh, cheatgrass standing dead biomass, graze it all down. But, uh, but over the long haul, over time, uh, we can shift that dominance and we know it, we know how to do it. Uh, and now it's just a matter of, of getting it implemented, um, and on, on scales that are significant enough to maybe have, uh, some effect on the size uh, of, of some of these wildfires that we've been having over the last couple of decades. Yeah. From an animal health perspective, are there any risks in grazing what seems like a pretty low quality feed at a time where you're moving into winter, trying to maintain body condition on mother cows? Uh, they're still in, you know, second, sometimes third trimester. Are there any risks in that? Oh yes, um, and and we've we've gone out of our way to try and mitigate those risks uh, in our research and in our recommendations. Uh, if you're out there in October, you know, mid September, October, November, uh, you know, you're you're you, you, you usually uh, for most operations, you're you're. Cattle are in in a physiological stage where it's their lowest physiological demand stage for nutrients they're mm-hmm. they're in that um, uh, you've weaned calves so the lact- right. they're, not yeah, lactating. they're not lactating um, and uh, they're in that uh, uh, you know late second trimester sort of period of time in some cases it depends but uh, depending on when people's calving dates are but uh, uh, typically they're they're out there at a period of time when their nutrient demand is at its lowest, and uh, and so what we've done even to try and and uh, make sure that there's some safety room there is we've uh, we've used uh, uh, supplements, protein supplements, just to make sure that we didn't have any train wrecks. Now, um, there's some years you know, and back to cheatgrass nutrition. Cheatgrass usually has a lot of quite a bit of uh, energy content that's usually not lacking uh, mm-hmm. in terms of animal requirements uh, but uh, sometimes the protein is but sometimes it's not uh, I've seen cheatgrass uh, uh, in any in any given year it's there it's much like our perennial grasses in any given year it may be seven and a half eight percent crude protein in October and it may be three percent it just depends on the given year. And, uh, and, and that's really not much different than, uh, than our perennial grasses. Um, yeah. and of course, cheatgrass is a, is a, once the seed heads drop, it becomes uh, a really nice, fine, um, particled, uh, forage. And, and we found that, uh, in, in one of our studies that, uh, uh cattle, uh, actually prefer it over the perennials. It's, it's not as coarse. Uh, there's not as much structural carbohydrate in it. Um, it it's digests a little bit easier, and so they actually prefer it over the over the perennials, which is is great 
as far as perennial health goes too. So, um, so as far as nutrition goes, it's, it's sort of an old, old tale that there's no nutritional value in cheap grass. And of course we'd have ranchers throughout the Intermountain West that uh, their, their families would probably have been out of business a long time ago if they didn't have cheap grass to winter on. And of course mm-hmm. the, you know, the tale was, is it's no good. Well, uh, you know, there's there's some of these old boys that kind of you know make the joke that oh, if we eat all the cheatgrass, we won't have we won't have any winter feed anymore. So uh, it's 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 much better feed source uh, than than sort of what's floating out there in the sort of public domain. Uh, it's it's a whole lot better feed than than it's given credit for at least in the fall anyway. Yeah. I can see a number of other benefits to fall and winter grazing in particularly the lower elevation cheatgrass dominated range. Those are often places that uh, get grazed fairly heavily in May and June and not grazing in May and June would have some benefit as well. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of their thoughts on, on fire. Going back to a comment you made about really no no wildfire in Central Asia. Is that only because fuel is food, or are there other, um, you know, climate mechanisms that make it to where they would not have much fire, even if, uh, even if grasses weren't being consumed by animals? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. The answer to that is probably yes. There, there's going to be some areas that, just like there is in the United States and in the Mount West, where fire is just not going to be a um, out of control, so to speak, and, and be so frequent um, like we have it in, in many places in the Intermountain West now. Uh, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the size, it's the frequency that, that gets changed when we, when we begin to have these, these annual grasses that become dominant. Um, it, it would be a really interesting question uh, to answer uh, because it, it's certainly true. If there's something that can be, if an animal can get to it in Central Asia, they're going to get to it. Uh, if it's if it's there, it's food. Um, they're much more on a, a pastureless subsistence basis uh, over there, and, uh, uh, and, mm-hmm. and we just we just view land management. Their their idea of land management is vastly different than what ours has been. Uh, over the last several decades in in the U.S. And uh, so, um, you know, in in the very few instances that you can find over there uh, where grazing has been excluded, and I mean it is is hard to find, Uh, and and even when you build Mm -hmm. grazing exclosures, which I've done over there, it's very hard to keep animals out of the grazing exclosures, especially when you're on the other side of the world. Um, it's just a, it's yeah. a different mentality and, uh, the security, uh, on grazing exclosures over there is, um, uh, even when you pay for security, uh, it may not be as secure <laughs> as you would like for it to be. So, um, it's a, it's a whole different mindset, uh, in Central Asia than, than what it has been in the U S over the last several decades. Yeah. One last rabbit trail regarding wildfire. You know, if we had, it's often said that most of the plant communities in the West are fire adapted, are disturbance driven ecosystems. Uh, but if we had, if we had ten fire ecologists in the room, we'd probably get twenty seven different answers on what the historic fire return interval was. Uh, is and some people would say wildfire. In most of the West, would happen, you know, anywhere from every fifteen to hundred years, depending on the plant community. You know, to what extent is are are the wildfires that we're having a big problem? And I realize they're a, a human problem. Uh, you know how? Yeah, what are your thoughts on? on how prevalent fire was in the past, both human-caused and wildfire, and the extent of uh, historical wildfire. And do we cause other problems if we try to manage grazing animals in a way that it really limits 
both the severity and the frequency of wildfires uh, as we see them today? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, and I, I, I really sort of hammer this point in, in my classes when I, that I teach is that context is important. It's critically important. Um, you know, if you're going to if you're going to tell me the story of you, where are you going to begin? Mm-hmm. You're going to begin at the beginning. You know, you, you, it's, you can't start in the middle of a story. <laughs> you got to start at the beginning, and you got to provide context. And so that's what this 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 idea of fire frequency, uh, you know, historical fire frequency, does for us. One of the things it does for us is is it gives us an idea of what the natural range of variation has been in the past, um, and we can combine that with some of the climate work and tree ring work and things like that, and we can come up with some ideas of 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 what the 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 limits are uh, anyway, or what they have been on average over the past several hundred years, or in some cases, maybe the last several thousand years. Uh, And so context is extremely important to understand what the natural range of variation is and where we might go if something changes on the landscape uh, in some way. Uh, But uh, I, I prefer thinking forward and saying, okay, what do we want the landscape to be like in the future, and of course, in, in in my way of thinking is I want to maintain options for the future. Okay, if we're if we're all burned up, if we've got if we've got uh, fire frequencies of you know two to five years over fifty eight million acres of former sagebrush, Great Basin sagebrush. Uh, that's a problem system then i don't have i don't have very many options for doing anything uh, in the future for carry for for you know wildlife habitat purposes or 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 cattle grazing purposes or or anything there's just not much option there and so i think society and, and the leaders in society have to say look this is what we want for the future we want to maintain our options for the future how do we go about managing processes uh, in order to achieve that and by processes i mean things like fire i mean things like recruitment pulses like big years and uh, and of of you know annual grass flushes um how do we how do we manage things to be what we want it to be in the future? Because trying to manage things like they were in the past is just it's just ridiculous. Uh, you you can't go back, but you can mm-hmm. look forward and you can make a plan and say, look, this these are the kinds of uh, of things that we would like to have out there in the future. We want. Uh, you know, we want carbon sequestration. We want uh, wildlife habitat, a mix of habitats, seasonal habitats for all kinds of critters out there. We want to be able to use these lands for for uh, grazing purposes, and we can use grazing as a tool to uh, help us maintain those options out there. Uh, so I think that's the direction that 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 we should be moving instead of this this idea of trying to create something on the landscape that it probably never was and we probably don't have a good understanding of it or as good of an understanding of it sometimes as I think we think that we do. So you know, in the past, um, you know, I, I, an interesting question that, that that has come up this year that I've been discussing with some of my colleagues, uh, we had the uh, fire up in the Hawaii desert this year that burned about 450,000 acres and it was a sagebrush driven fire. Uh, it wasn't a, wasn't an annual grass fire. It started in some annual grass, but, but once it got into sagebrush country up there, it, it, uh, it was a sagebrush fire and there is a, such of a thing as a sagebrush driven fire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and in the, the, the sagebrush step area where you have, a lot of understory, a lot of perennial understory. Um, those kinds of fires probably happened every once in a 
while. Uh, you know, right. what, what, you know what the time period in between them was, we don't know, but, uh, but they probably happened. And so when you look at the Hawaii desert um, and you see some of the other fires that have burned almost 20 years ago now that, that don't have sagebrush, hasn't come back to them, uh, you have to start thinking about your understanding of, of these areas and, and, and it really makes you wonder how – it makes you think this way. It makes you want to think this way that a lot of those areas that we think as sagebrush seas has probably spent the last several hundred years or maybe even over the last several thousand years has probably spent more time as a grassland than it has been as a shrubland. And so that just flies in the face of everything that <laughs> that that we we have lined up for management, um, and so it, it really sort of changes the context when you when you start uh, start thinking about that because sagebrush recruitment, like everything else, is is episodic, and uh, you know when you see a sagebrush plant community out here, you're only looking at three or maybe four different cohorts. Um, that are mm-hmm. out there um, that are making up all that structure that you're seeing. And, uh, and most of those are, you know, 40 or maybe maximum of 40 or 50 years old it's sort of been our, um, our uh, uh, experience. And so, you know, how do you get propagules, you know, seed rain from sagebrush, you know, maybe three meters in a year. Um, how do you get, how do you get sagebrush seed, from a seed source over here that's 80 miles or a hundred miles from the center of the, you know, of one of those kinds of fires, you know, how long does that take? Mm -hmm. Uh, Hundreds of years, uh, possibly, Um, maybe even more than that. We just don't know. So there's some really fascinating questions that, uh, um, that I think uh, are going to need to be answered before we get a good idea or a better idea. It's going to help us have a, a better idea of how to manage into the future based on a, a set of goals and objectives that we have for, you know, for the future instead of trying to manage things so that they'll become something that they were, which is kind of, kind of where we've been progressing the last several decades anyway, in my opinion. The funding for this podcast is from the Western Center for Risk Management Education, and the, the goal uh, primarily is helping ranchers manage environmental and economic risks. If I, if I were a, a rancher in the Great Basin, uh, what, what resources would you point me to if I was interested in learning a little bit more about uh, what we've been discussing today? Well, certainly uh, Cooperative Extension uh, is a, a great place to start. Um, some of this uh, stuff that we've been talking about today is, is relatively new. I mean, it's only been 10 years since, since we've been doing some of this cheatgrass work. Um, and we're beginning to see some, some changes in policy uh, out of Washington, D.C., uh, in terms of uh, management and some of the efforts that some of the management agencies are uh, uh, becoming involved in. Um, they're beginning to take a look at some of this work and, and, and trying to implement it on the landscape. Uh, but I would, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in cooperative extension and uh, uh, just about everybody, I say just about everybody, a lot of folks know that this is going on now, that it's new. Um, a new approach, and uh, they may not know much about it, but they know who to get a hold of uh, to, yeah. to, to uh, uh, you know, help out. So I'm always available to do whatever I can, uh, and some of my colleagues as well. So, uh, you know, that, that's a great place to start is Cooperative Extension. Very good. My guest today was Barry Perryman with University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, Barry, again, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Glad to, glad to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, 
send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.